welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Over the decades, from the 1850s onwards, tens of thousands of men from Guangdong left home and sailed, often via Hong Kong, to San Francisco to find work and money, prospecting for gold, and later on, doing the backbreaking and dangerous work of the first transcontinental railroad that went across America. Scholars are yet to find one personal letter home, says author Ed Shu, who's based near St. Louis in Missouri. His father was a paper son, as he calls it, an immigrant coming from Guangdong, probably on another person's papers in the 1920s. The railway took six years and was completed just over 150 years ago in 1869. Nearly 3,100 kilometers of continuous railway that required using dynamite and chipping away at the hard rock of the mountains in the Sierra Nevada. Chinese workers provided 90% of that railroad labor. Yet, at a ceremony to mark the 100th anniversary in 1969, they were barely mentioned. These days, their labor has finally been recognized. Ed Shu has written an historic novel based on these workers, telling the story of two brothers, Li Yu and Li Chang, who leave Guangdong and head for the gold fields. It's a story of love, loyalty, hard work and suffering. It also shows the treatment of Chinese women at that time. It's called Chinese Brothers, American Sons, and it's published by Earnshaw Books. The brothers will later work on the first transcontinental railroad. Ed Shu's novel also looks at the treatment of these Chinese women and how many were treated as a sellable commodity, sold into domestic service, prostitution or marriage. I learned during the interview that Ed's own mother, who grew up in Chinatown in St. Louis, was also sold into marriage. I started doing some research and I was first looking at the gold mines. And for example, I didn't realize that over 20% of the gold miners were Chinese. And then I also started looking into the railroad era. And I, I knew from just history and talking with friends, you know, that really wasn't something that, that we covered in American history in the States. And uh, so I thought I'd like to explore that. And then I found out later that Stanford University had just begun a research project into looking at Chinese who worked on the Transcontinental Railroad. And they discovered that no firsthand account had ever been found. And now they've been working on that up to the present time. And they still have never found a firsthand account of, as they call it, railroad Chinese. Uh, and they've even gone back to, to China and worked with scholars there. So, that, so that's one reason why I thought, well, why don't I just write a historical novel uh, about this era? So that's how that came about a little bit. So when you say there's no first-hand account, is that uh, sort of, uh, so the Chinese themselves talking about their life? I mean, it must have been so physically grueling anyway. But, oh, yes. um, right. you know, but a number of these men were literate. They were writing mm -hmm. home or they would get letter writers to write for them. Yes, but no documentation of that has ever been found according to Stanford University. You know, they have they have some verbal things handed down, but they have never physically found a letter or anything. And a lot of the things they were piecing together is archaeological digs throughout the United States and and looking at maybe the Canadian Pacific Railway and uh, you know, kind of transferring what, what they found there into the U.S., uh, you know, accounts. But but no, no firsthand account of, of a, a railroad worker in, in the United States during the transcontinental era has ever been found. So that was like 1863 to 1869. So, so no firsthand account has ever been found. So they're still looking. 
Interesting. Now, if you can give uh, just our listeners a small, just a pricey at the beginning of what your novel is about. So it's, it's called Chinese Brothers, American Son. So it's about two men who travel from southern China to go to America. First of all, you know, I want to say, you know, I'm not I'm not a historian, but researching, you know, a little bit in China, the 1850s, a lot of the poverty there. And I think different takeovers by the British and some other countries that uh, anyway, the, the plight of the peasants in southern China it was so bad that they had sell off sometimes their children. And even the, the little they could make from growing rice, they had to pay back to the government. So poverty is widespread. So this is an opportunity when when I guess some southern Chinese heard about Gold Mountain and California, they, they decided, well, why don't we go there, make some money, then return to China. So these two brothers, one who'd been, I guess, volunteered to be sewed so that he could help his family out, learned his trade being a chef. And then later on, the story goes, became, a, you know, working as a, as a cook in southern China. He decided to then go to the United States with his younger brother. And his younger brother had just gotten married and his wife was pregnant, but they decided to try and come to America, get some money and, and then and go back to China. So that's kind of how the story story started and then they they came on that ship conditions were pretty bad not much food a lot of fighting for the food that they were given by the the crew and the captain so I mean, certainly the way that you describe in the Manchu dynasty, the, the, the lot of these agricultural peasants, which comprised, as you say, 99% of China's population was dire, but a lot of death from starvation, disease. Yeah, I have to say that I, I appreciate it as a historical novel, but it's still based on historical fact. And I have to say, I was, I was, even though I was ready for the racism, I was ready for just how you know awful some of that was going to be. I wasn't ready for just the awful conditions on the ship, the fact that these men are locked in the hold. I made their conditions very dire on, on that ship. Yeah, you know, they, they survived, they survived, you know, the, the relationship and their bond between each other, you know, mm. I think as the, as the grows, as, as the story develops, I think that's a, a big thing. I, I kind of think of my relationship with my brother. And so in, in, in some ways, it's maybe a little bit autobiographical yes. because uh, my relationship with my brother, who did the artwork in the, in the book, yes, too, John, the cover John and Shue, couple yes. illustrations. John yes. Shu, yes. yes. I, I can't, give him enough credit. And so, like, again, I think our our relationship has evolved through the years, too. And, uh, you know, I think in the Chinese culture that he's the oldest, oldest brother, oldest son, and he's the one given, rightly so, most respect by our, our parents. And I'm the youngest one, and I'm learning from him. To this day, now it's somewhat reversed. I think he kind of looks up to me a little bit, but I certainly still look up to him a lot. So Now tell me about uh, also, your, if you don't mind, your own family background. I, I found that also interesting in terms of, you know, you're describing this autobiographical aspect of you and your brother. But can you also tell me about your father? Well, my father, you know, that's a person that I know very little bit about. I, I honestly can't remember one conversation with him. Uh, we shared a lot of meals together. He couldn't speak English very much. You know, I remember him saying things like, oh, he would be catching frogs in the rivers and around Canton. But it really didn't even dawn on me until later in life when our mother used to say, well, you know, you're really a Lee not a shoe. It really didn't dawn on me that until later that obviously he had to have come over on someone else's papers. They're called paper sons. And that's why, you know, she kept always saying you're a Lee, but not really a shoe. And, and it's funny. I really didn't think, I honestly didn't think about much about that until after he had died. And we have all these issues now with immigration in the United States. And But no, I really didn't have a relationship with him. But I, all I, I remember that he loved to cook for us. And, and that's... Oh, right. 
that was a that was a big thing. Yeah. So when did your and, father uh, come to America? And the, uh, the little research we've done is late 1920s, and he came over with his brother. Now, interestingly, you know, as someone pointed out to me, and, and I don't know, is that it was that his real brother or his brother on paper? So that's even kind of up in the air. So his brother lived in Chicago, and my dad, for a time, worked in this uh, Air Force base, and then he came to St. Louis. And then mother is arranged marriage. When she was 15, he was probably around 30. I think they grew up in Chinatown in St. Louis, which was leveled when they built a, a baseball stadium. Her life was, was really not not the greatest. I think her sister got sold too, but she, you know, she's a survivor, so um, and she loved us very much. I know, but she was just a kid when she when she married and had children. Five, I think, five children in eight years. She was born in St. Louis. I see. Right. She was born in St. Louis. Yeah. But, but I, I really don't know much about her background either. Um, uh, something was never talked about. Wow. Yeah, no, that, that would be interesting because, of, of course, you've got the 15-year age gap. But, I mean, mm -hmm. was she able to speak Cantonese? Yes, yes. And she, she, she was bilingual, and so that's probably one reason why. And again, I was told I could speak a little Chinese when I was younger, but since she mainly spoke English to us, the little Chinese that I knew, Cantonese, I, I've forgotten. Now, she had a difficult life, and she stayed with us the last several months when she was dying of cancer. So, Did very she... meaningful point in life. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yes, and as you say, yeah, hard life. I mean, with your book, Chinese Brothers, American Sons, you talk about, you know, as you say, you've got these various layers. Of you've, got, you've got the relationship between the two men themselves and how particularly the older one is looking out for the younger one, but also... There are occasions where the younger one also does the same, but they're, they're sort of trying to see one another through in, in terrible circumstances. They're trying to look for gold initially, and, uh, you know, and also, as you say, it's a story of the Transcontinental Railroad, but it's also this, the story of the inherent institutionalized racism in America where Chinese were absolutely not seen as human for some of it, I mean, in their treatment. Oh, yes. Right. There were laws against the Chinese. I think the California Supreme Court made it. It was uh, a Chinese person couldn't even testify against a white person in those days. So therefore, according to what I read, you know, the, the white miners just ran roughshod over the Chinese because they knew they could take their claims and beat them up and sometimes even hang them and, and, and murder them. But nothing would be done. A Chinese person couldn't testify against a white person. And then they had all these other laws about taxes where the, the Chinese would pay taxes uh, that the white miners didn't have to pay. And, and interestingly, that money would go to the hospitals, you know, to fund the hospitals. And the Chinese couldn't even uh, go to the hospital if they needed medical care. Yes, they weren't so, allowed yeah, to the public the hospitals. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, no, I mean, 150 years on, how does that make you feel? Well, not very good. But, you know, our, our history of treating... Um, People that aren't white, they're not very good, uh, whether it's Native American. And the railroads really was the was the end for the Native Americans. It, it went right through their land. And, uh, and then for sport, Americans would kill all the buffalo off. And that was where the food and clothing and internment of Japanese uh, and obviously treatment of, of African-Americans, of blacks. Our country doesn't have a, a, too good of a history in uh, treating someone that, that isn't white up, up until this day. So, so for me, combination of being angry shame, sad, you know, I can remember during, you know, even the Vietnam War being spit at a couple of times during the Vietnam War even. So uh, oh, it hits home. Mm. Yeah. When stuff like that happens. Yeah. Mm. 
What what would you said uh, drove you to tell this story? Well, I, I think the big thing is that, you know, when I started doing some research, I, I think the point is it's, it never has been towed. You know, again, in history, we, we get fragments. Maybe the Chinese helped the railroad, but never to the extent, you know, because 90 percent of the workers on the western portion of the Transcontinental Railroad were Chinese. And so uh, there's a phrase that I read that I repeat sometimes, and I think it's the uh, the Chinese built the railroad and the uh, railroad built this country. So, yeah, the, the railroad probably in the 19th century was the most important thing that ever happened in the United States, the, the Transcontinental Railroad, because it allowed goods to be transferred from east to west and, and, and goods from, from Asia to be transferred from the west coast to the east coast and everything from our economy to our, you know intellectual pursuits that it's, it's, it was so important. So I wanted to tell that story and of the men who built the railroad and, and discrimination had to be a big part of that, too, to to, to show the discrimination towards the Chinese. On a more positive front is the, the ingenuity used by some of the Chinese that you describe, which is also was interesting. You know that they'd already done in South China agriculture, um, you know, the back-breaking right. work of sowing rice, which I've well, observed. I just thought, oh, my, it's mm-hmm. so, so hard. But sure. they, they would actually, they implemented all sorts of forms of irrigation, cycling in order to... Right, Tre- yeah, treadmills and the cycling. Yeah. And, and, they, and, they, and they did that they were looking for gold and so Chinese very very inventive group. So how did they use that so, kind of technology and explain to us how, how they use that kind of engineering technology in, in, in the gold rush? Well for example my understanding is you know when they for example they had rivers and uh, they needed to I guess I think, I think it was called sluicing and they, they had to attempt to find gold in the river banks and so a lot of times they had to get the river level down at a certain location and so they would pedal and remove the water through pedaling now i'm no expert on that so some kind of pedaling that allowed the water to be taken out of these certain areas that they had blocked off dammed in the river and so they were able to do that then they were able then to find gold that was left uh, you know in the sediment and things like that now, as you say, the other <laughs> m- massive, yeah, I mean, it's ex- yeah, extraordinary. But the the other massive project, as you say, that they were involved in, a years long project, was of course the Transcontinental Railroad. So, what years was that? Well, the last spike, the Golden Spike, was put in eighteen sixty nine in May. And what's a Golden uh, Spike? It actually started. That was that was the the uh, the last spike put in to, to join the, the Central Pacific Railroad from the west and the Union Pacific Railroad from the east. But it started, I think, groundbreaking ceremony started in Sacramento, I believe, in 1862. And I have uh, the Lee brothers joining the railroad, I believe, in, in 1863. They had like a stopover in San Francisco for about four or five years after mining for gold. Then they're seeking adventure again. So this time the older brother decided to join the younger brother on this new adventure in uh, building the railroad. Now, I mean, again, back-breaking work because of the technology that you'd have had at the time. But uh, because, I mean, part of it was also, um, can you describe the very difficult part, was actually just cutting through granite. Right. Well, granite, right. That, that, and they, they did that all, you know, by hand uh, using black powder, dynamite, and later on nitroglycerin. But you'd have these crews maybe in a shaft, all granite, and you had to build it like 20 feet high and 18 feet wide for a train to go through. And so they're using chisels and hammers, and you might have somebody holding the chisel like Lee Chang, the smaller one, but the older one would be holding the chisel. And then you'd have maybe Lee Yu and another miner alternately hitting that chisel. 
and they would probably only get maybe a foot a day and hammering and, uh, you know, breathing all that dust by light of a candle. <laughs> I mean, it's not like there were even lanterns. And they'd be doing that day after day. Then when nitroglycerin came along, they, they did that did to move a little faster. But by that time, you know, a lot of a lot of the Chinese workers were working seven days a week, 12 hours a day. And that's one reason why there was that strike. And as I as I have and, and historical now, you know, led by the younger brother, Li Yu, mm. that, that time, he assumed more leadership. No, I mean, the work was unrelenting. And uh, Oh, yes. But you also describe them and also the bit where you're describing them looking for gold is the sort of life outside. I mean, it is, it is, everything is tough. I mean, you know, where they're going to sleep, which is often outside. Um, and uh, also this, uh, the, you know, the fact that people are stealing off one another. You know, if, you know you, if you have discovered gold, you stay very, very quiet about it or the way that they cooperate with one another to ensure that if one has a big amount of gold and it's split between a number of them in order to be less obvious um, to, to right. others. But also, it's a story of women um, because... Um, as yes. a, sorry, you carry on. You know, there's an element of human trafficking in, in the book. You know, when, when when they come over on the ship, I know they observe a few women and, you know, the younger brother, Lee Yu, he's, you know, he's certainly very naive. He's like 16 years old. And he's even he's asking, what are these women here? Well, they're even little they're girls, actually. And and uh, Lee Chang says, well, you know, these women, these girls are going to be either uh, used as prostitutes or hired out as servants. And so, you know, on Lee's first day in San Francisco, when they arrive there, he goes exploring and he he finds, you know, looks out in this basement through this uh, broken glass window and he sees these these women and young girls. And, and one, of them, one of them is the same young woman that he saw coming over on the ship that he kind of, I, I kind of say it was more or less like love at first sight. And he remembered her and then he kept thinking about her for all these years. Later on now, they're back from the gold mining era. They're back in San Francisco. His, his brother now is thinking of opening up a, a Chinese restaurant. And he goes exploring, I think, one day after he's beaten up by a white mob. Now he wants to go back to Chinatown, and he's all beaten up. And he he observes uh, a, a bunch of women and girls being sold again, and again, human trafficking. And yeah, there's an element of that throughout the whole book, because as he looks for her, he wonders, is she a prostitute or is she a servant or is he ever going to find her? So that that's an element that I, I added that to the book later on. I, I think it works pretty well. But so that's a that's a thread throughout the whole whole book. But human trafficking is is, is an element in the book. And, and that's certainly a big issue nowadays. And the, the woman who who wrote a, a, a review, which is on the back of the book, uh, that's Dr. Rumi Cato Price from Washington University in St. Louis. That That's uh, that's one of her big uh, elements of study. I think that's one, why she, one reason why she agreed to do that review, which, which again is on the back of the book because it has an element of human trafficking in it. Yeah, yeah I'm talking to Ed Chu in Missouri in, in the United States about his book, Chinese Brothers, American Sons, which is published by Earnshaw Books. And it starts off with the Lee brothers leaving um, southern China or Guangdong in order to head over to America. And, and, and there's a story of great hardship, um, but also mirrors what occurred, in fact, to um, thousands or tens of thousands of young men who left the poverty of southern China in order to then try and provide some money for their family. So often these men would be married young 
um, in order to have a wife and then either be expecting a baby or otherwise the baby would already be there by the time they went to America. And of course, many of these husbands never saw their wives or families again. Uh, but uh, I've also previously talked to, and I will be again, uh, to Elizabeth Sin, who's a historian in Hong Kong, and, and she has uh, wrote a number of years ago a book called Pacific Crossing, which uh, looks at the men and women who pass through Hong Kong to go to California. And of course, Hong Kong did very well out of that uh, because um, you'd have all of these people with ships, you know, ships passage out of, of Hong Kong. And, uh, and those that didn't come back, um, their bones uh, would come back through Hong Kong in order to go back to their ancestral villages. I mean, it's interesting that these men went out from, from Guangdong. There's some specific areas where they all pretty much left and you would have these families. And of course, I've actually talked to and gone to these areas, Kaiping and other areas in Guangdong, where they then were sending the money back home. So obviously the wealth of these villages increased. But as the wealth of these villages increased, so did the problem of bandits. Um, because there was more to steal. Oh, yes. And, mm -hmm. and so they, they start building all these watchtowers in order to defend these villages. And you still can see those in different areas of Guangdong. And, and what I was going to ask you is, have you been back to southern China to see that side? Well, in 2012, my wife and I did go to China, and we spent a lot of time in, in rural China, not the usual tourist attractions. You know, certainly we saw the Great Wall and Xi'an and things like that. But, uh, you know, we did some hiking and biking in rural China. And like, like I said in the, in the, the afterward of, of the book, the, probably the site that I remember most are, you know, seeing all these rice fields and, and oxen, still farmed with oxen. So that's my, my fondest memory. You know, unfortunately, my brother, who had some letters from our dad after he, after he died, I, we tried to look for those letters. I asked him to look for those letters to see, see if we could, you know, get a contact, have it, have the letters translated. And unfortunately, my brother couldn't find those letters. But but yeah, we went. My wife and I have been back to southern China, but that was one time in 2012. Uh, certainly, might want to go back there now. Have a little more insight into a lot of things and uh, more curiosity than before. Um, but yes, we've been back one time. Now, with the Transcontinental Railroad, there was, um, which you also write about, that uh, in I think it was in the epilogue that I read it w with you or um, in, in your book, but you sort of talk about that 100 years on, that, you know, there was a ceremony in the 1960s, and even then, the huge contribution of the Chinese workers was written out of the speech. Has that been right. rectified in subsequent decades? Well, in, in a way, yes, I, I know... Um you're talking about in 1969, the Secretary of Transportation, John Volpe, didn't even mention the Chinese, maybe in passing, you know, maybe maybe 30 seconds in a speech. There has been work, uh, I think, Judy Chu, I think she's still in Congress now. They, they've passed resolutions uh, that the United States has apologized for the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. And I know even, I think in 2014, uh, there are a lot of fam famous labor figures in United States history, Samuel Gompers and uh, Cesar Chavez. And so the, the Chinese railroad workers were inducted into the United States Department of Labor Hall of Fame in, in 2014. So, so you know, there has been some recognition about the impact of the Chinese railroad, work, railroad workers and their importance to, to American history. So there has been some work done on that, hopefully some more. I, I, I feel good because some of the people who read the book now, they didn't know about this part of American history. So they're thrilled to, to read about that and uh, 
So the Chinese workers are getting their due somewhat and in, in, in their importance in American history. Yeah, so the Chinese Exclusion Act, can you just uh, describe what that w- involved? Well, that was basically like it, it didn't allow immigration into the United States for people from China. And those people who were here were not able to become U.S. citizens. So I would say those are the main two things. It wasn't until, I think, the 1940s when China was an ally uh, against the Japanese in World War II that that they, uh, the United States government uh, repealed the Chinese Exclusion Act. But that was really kind of in name only because it really wasn't until the 1960s that Chinese in large numbers were, were able to come, were able to immigrate to the United States. And, and the main reason for that was a lot of the, the Chinese had skills and the technology and another, they wanted us to, to utilize them for the workforce in the United States. So that's really, I think, how the, why the United States uh, decided to allow immigration from China. And that wasn't until the 1960s. I was very sorry when you described how during the Vietnam War you were spat at. Um, have you, has this, is this on the rise again with, you know, ignorance or prejudice over COVID-19? Well, it is. I, you know, I, I don't remember the exact number, but I, but I think, yes, it's definitely on the uprise, uh, where there's verbal or physical attacks. I, I, I can't say that I've been subjected to that, although I, I, I do kind of, when, when I walk around the neighborhood, I'm a little more wary now than I used to be. But no, it's it's just pretty widespread. I, I can't, I don't know what the numbers are, but uh, it, it makes, you know, Asians always, uh, you know, are, are we going to be always be viewed as the perpetual foreigners or, you know, it, it uh, it's it's always there, I think, in, in the back of, of, of the minds of Asians and uh, the constant still of, you know, your English is so good, where are you from? It, it's interesting because I don't, I don't really think white Americans or really any Americans understand how much that affects us, you know, uh, they might look at, you know, as a, a small slight a microaggression or you're not being hanged or something, or I, I don't know. It's, uh, but that, it's still, it's still there and it's getting more widespread and it doesn't help that the, you know, the Trump administration, uh, refers to the, the Kung flu or the Chinese virus, things like that. That just adds to, uh, certain element in this country that I don't think will ever view Chinese as, as, as Americans. Yeah. Well, I certainly think with Chinese brothers, American sons, you've done a great piece of work there to educate people about that history and prejudice, um, but also the contribution um, to American history, as you've described. So now your wife was integral in getting you going into uh, marching into a publisher's <laughs> office as such. Um, do you see, a, you know, you were saying that people are saying, write a sequel. What, have you got any ideas what that sequel might be? <laughs> so, uh, well, the story kind of ends, well, which I should say, uh, people probably need to read the epilogue because that's kind of a continuation. And so um, I know um, Lee Yu, he starts a Chinese American newspaper. So, so, you know, one could go deeper because, you know, uh, the Chinese Exclusion Act was 1882. So certainly you could continue there about the treatment of the Chinese and, and, and other Asians. And then his wife decides to help young women that were in her situation. She tries to either uh, find them uh, husbands or return them to China. The human trafficking element that she tries to to uh, to help and uh to cut back on that so it's possible she would do a sequel could be done there someone suggested i should just do do actually a more 
try and figure out uh, what our, our family's history and do something there, the, the, the conditions they lived in in, in St. Louis Chinatown and do something about that and kind of uh, intertwine that with, with uh, current trends and how, how, how Asians are treated uh, right now. I, there, there are a lot of, lot of ways to go. I don't know. It, it, it takes me another nine years. I don't know if I could do that, though. But, uh. Well, I think uh, do what you want to do. Um, I mean, I think, you know, what you told me about your, your mother is, is really interesting. I mean, from my, from my perspective, there's lots, I mean, there's lots I don't know that once, I mean, Hong Kong history, I'll know a little bit more, of course, because I've lived here half my life. But, but um, you know, in terms of Chinese communities who either went to America or have long since generational lived in america i i know um less about and you know so if you could focus on something that was personal to you but you know it's interesting that uh with i mean as you say with the two brothers in in your novel there are elements of autobiographical but it also depends on how you know whether you would i mean perhaps with the st louis example um st louis example you could actually again make that into a kind of historical novel so it's not quite you saying this is the story of my family if you didn't want to. Right. I, I, there's, there's a lot of ways to go and I have to sit back a little bit and decide what I want to do. My thanks to author Ed Shu talking there on his historic novel, Chinese Brothers, American Sons, which is published by Earnshaw Books. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs> <laughs>